um, I'm very glad to be here. I really appreciate this Sangha, Gil Sangha. Right? There's a particular quality of, that I find here which is very uh, touching. You can feel a sense of community, a sense of people working together as a community. And that's very special. Um, I'm also part of a community. And uh, uh, it's not such a well-known community. You know, we've, um, uh, I've, I've been a non-ordained in 1979, nearly 24 years ago. And uh, I, was, uh, I, I became a nun at the ta- that time, 25 years ago. And it was a very, um, quite an extraordinary experiment as part of, we were all little kind of um, guinea pigs just um, experimenting, um, bringing a traditional community to the West with with what it entails when you bring East and West together, uh, monasticism versus a very lay orientated community, society, especially in England where the monastery were burnt several centuries before our centuries. So uh, it was uh, an inter- interesting experiment. And so tonight, uh, for the little time the little time I have, um, I thought I will speak to you a little bit about the life of a nun and what it is to live in a monastic life, and what is a monastic community. So I haven't spoken about this uh, very much over the last two years I've been around here, and I thought I might find it interesting, perhaps. So let's see what happens. Um, People sometimes ask me, how did you become a nun? So I I say something which makes them laugh, laugh, because I always think that um, I only realized three years after I ordained that I really had become a nun. <laughs> and only because the reason why I ordained was that uh, I was interested. I had met a Chensumedu who I did not consider particularly as my teacher because I was like many of you uh, who spent many years trying to uh, cultivate a kind of spiritual independence, uh, not wanting anybody to tell us what to do and... Uh, I not wanted to depend on anyone. So um, I did not want to admit that neither was I a Buddhist nun, nor did I have a teacher for quite a number of years. Uh, I was just uh, very keen on meditation and realized after having been a dancer for many years and trained as a dancer, I was used to a strong discipline and a strong training. And suddenly, after 33 years, 32 years, uh, 31 years, really, I realized I had a mind. (laughs) I had never been trained. (laughs) I had a body, been very well trained, but my mind, really, I didn't even know I had a mind. Like many of you, we spent many years wondering why life is this way or that way, why, why we have certain circumstances that seem to follow us around, and suddenly we turn around, we realize we have a mind that seemed to be the culprit of it all. <laughs> and so this is really what uh, interested me at the time. Suddenly I realized there was a whole vast field of training, understanding, and, and that 
became uh, a great joy in my life when uh, there, there was this, suddenly this vast vista in front of me of possibilities. And I wasn't 32. Of course, at 32, like most of you, you feel like you're very old already, don't you? <laughs> You've done it all, you know, and there's nothing left to do really except <laughs> becoming wise. <laughs> so this is was my agenda. I was kind of get some wisdom by the age of 31. I thought the next 20 years, I'd just like to develop a few skillful means that's going to help me to live a little bit better and to be maybe a, to grow as a better person. So I had a good fortune to meet Ajahn Somedo whilst I was studying at university where my ex-husband was a university professor there. And he visited the students because one of the students at university had been a monk with Ajahn Shah for three years. And he was also a student of my ex-husband. And so he started the Buddhist Society, invited Ajahn Somedo, and that's, that's how I got to know him. And I heard him speak about his life as a monk in Thailand. And lo and behold, I thought, my God, this is a life I've been looking for, even though I didn't want to be a nun particularly. But I felt the lifestyle that he was describing had an amazing kind of... uh, It just kind of, um, in a way, encapsulated uh, the way I wanted to deal with my own energy, with my own mind. Because he he was describing a very simple way of life which made use of the brain <laughs> and uh, use of one's intelligence, one's wisdom, and at the same time seem to go in the direction of simplicity, contentment, and happiness. And I thought, that's just what I, I want to have in my life. I don't want to become a brainless, vegetable-like person living in the countryside. You know, I was, I was a city girl, you know, a metropolitan girl more, you know, so I wanted to live uh, you know, I just wanted to have a kind of interesting life, but also I felt the need to simplify it and so what he was describing, even the idea of getting up early in the jungle of Thailand that he was uh, talking about at the time, seemed very appealing I didn't particularly want to Thailand nor wanted, did I, did I want to live in the jungle but I could understand the spirit I just got a sense of what that meant, the, 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 the the letting go of what I, so many identities that we carry around, you know, when we have to live in society, a culture that makes a lot of demands on us, makes a lot of uh, pressure, you know, inflict a lot of pressures on us to be a certain way. So the idea of just dropping one's identity, even if it was to get another one, but at least it was one that was completely committed to the path of letting go and liberation was very attractive and the path of truth. So uh, eventually that brought me to um, Chetas Monastery, even though I had no intention to ordain whatsoever, but the jokes in my community is that Ajahn Sundarai came down for a cup of tea and never left. (laughs) (laughs) And this is true. Uh, It's just the way it happened, really. It wasn't that I just came down for the cup of tea and planned to become a nun, it's just some insight arose as I was meeting Achen Sumedo and talking with him, which made me feel that suddenly I was in charge of my own life and was able to do what I wanted. Basically, I was responsible. I could stay there or not, but it was not. I had choices. The insight I, 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 that that I, I, I got at the time was the fact that I became felt a sense of freedom, and I felt that I had the sense that I had choices. I could do whatever I wanted. 
uh, to follow the path of truth. I could be a lay person, I could be a monastic, whichever way uh, I, I, I went was okay, kind of thing. And certainly I had no intention to stay. But you see what happens to insight, particularly the one that you hardly notice, are very powerful. And suddenly I found myself actually staying at the monastery, um, you know, uh, without really having fully decided. But I felt really so at home with the whole um, situation there. Uh, it wasn't even the situation because the countryside was in particular. I mean, I was very attracted to the countryside, but it was not something that I felt I had to spend my whole life uh, there. But it was just more, it was something much deeper. You know, the, the sense of commitment of the people living there was something so moving and so touching. That kind of total commitment to something uh, that was so in, 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 uh, founded in the path of truth, in the path of liberation, in the path of um, something, a kind of respect for life, you know, a deep, profound respect for hu- our humanness that it really drew me. It's like it drew my heart like a bee's on honey. You know, it just, just attracted me, you know, beyond my control almost. You know, even though my my identity, self-identity, you know, wasn't particularly in it. But this there was this pull and attraction to uh, a commitment that I was not even aware of at the time. So I stayed, and people tend to think that uh, monastic life is is a life of peace and a life of ease and relaxation and we're all sitting on our little kind of uh, fluffy pink cushion waiting for Nibbana to kind of dawn on us, you know, eventually as we sit and sit and sit with a smile on our face and lots of just eating and drinking, sitting and just merrily waiting for Nibbana. That's often people say, oh, do you mean you have anger? Do you mean you doubt? Do you mean you get upset about things? As if monks and nuns turn into suddenly this kind of marble, smiling Buddha that was just completely um, cut off from reality, um, just had, you know, completely free from problems, issues, uh, difficulties, pain, and all the rest of it. Well, this is why I thought I will talk to you a little bit more about the monastic life. <laughs> So I would dispel a few illusions, you know. <laughs> so when I came to the monastery, I ended up living in a small cottage about 15 minutes from the main house, which, by the way, this house came about because the uh, English Sangha Trust, which was a foundation in England, which existed for a number of decades, and its purpose was to invite monks from Asia and host them while they were teaching. Eventually, Achen Sumido came across them, and they said, he's the guy. That's him who we want. And so the president of, the, of the, this trust went to, with Achen Sumido to Thailand to ask permission if Achen Sumido could come back to England and start a monastic community. So we don't do things, we do things very thoroughly in this tradition. Ajahn Shah went all the way back to England to check out whether the place was suitable for forest monks to live there, you know, Busy urban place, London. The house was on a busy street with several pubs across the road. 
And so, but I didn't trust that it was a suitable place. It was good for, you know, it was good enough for, for monks to train and to start cultivating the, continuing to cultivate the Dhamma in an urban situation. That's how it all began. And the, the house of Chittest came about when one of the joggers that they used to meet in Hampstead Heath in London, uh, that, uh, who they met regularly, one day offered them a forest in West Sussex, about two hours from London. He had inherited this forest and he felt he could not take care of it himself and so that the Buddhist monks were the ideal people to um, take responsibility for this forest. That's how it all began. So the president of this trust went down to check out whether the forest existed or not <laughs> and uh, and find out that about 15 minutes walk from this forest there was a great, a great big house on sale with another property, uh, a huge... Um, uh, mansion, and uh, there it was, you know, on sale. So it wasn't. Uh, there, there had been a, several offers with a, a much higher price, but the owner somehow uh, gave the 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 the, the 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 chance to this uh, man to buy the house with less money. That was a good sign. So they moved to that place, which was a complete chaos because it had been owned by a man who had a, a, a driving school and it was an old couple by then and they had just dumped all, this, all the cars that were not working anymore in the garden, in the most beautiful garden. And the house itself had piles of newspaper and beers and wine bottles in every room, almost up to the ceiling. And this is England, remember? <laughs> People do like old things, <laughs> <laughs> including their buses and <laughs> taxis and, you know, and other things. Not like in America where we like things that kind of keep changing, that keeps moving. Um, so uh, that's how the community started, you know. And there was only a few monks, maybe four or five monks. And a couple of lay women turned up. And we wanted to ordain within that very same summer. I turned up too. Let's say within three months, four of us arrived at Chitters, four women. There were, there were already five monks there. And at me, we didn't have much intention to ordain. You know, I still was wearing my kind of lay clothes and being French. You know what that means? You know, we like to dress well and to kind of, we spend a lot of time looking good, you know. So the idea of suddenly shaving my head and, you know, wearing a kind of sheets around me, wasn't particularly appealing, especially white. I hated white, you know. I hated white. So, um, so after three weeks, you know, um, Achen Sumedu said, "Well, I think if you want to all stay here, it would be good if you took the eight precepts, which we did. We had a wonderful ceremony, and we were given names. My name before was Françoise, that's a French name, and I'm, I was given the name Sundara. And as soon as I arrived at Chittest, um and met the three women I was going to live with for many years, I realized I had just met the three women I had avoided all my life. <laughs> so, you think it's easy, isn't it? Um, I had been used to refined environments, you know, candles, sticks for, for supper, baroque music in the background, all the rest of it, and I found myself in a kind of damp, and a kind of building site for the next five years, uh, you know, 
places being uh, kind of gutted, gutted, you know, from top from top to bottom, from top to bottom, and people working a lot and having to learn to paint, which I hated the first six months. I used to want to throw my paintbrushes every time I had painted. I couldn't stand washing them. I wasn't from, I didn't come from a handy family, <laughs> so I did not know, and I, know I wasn't practical at all. I had to drill holes in, in walls, you know, to do a dump course in our little cottage in the monastery. I had to learn to wallpaper, I had to learn to, to, to cook for 25 people, 30 people, when I, I'd never been a, a happy cook in my life, you know. I, I tended to go to restaurants as much as I could. And, um, you know, all that sort of thing. So there was a lot of challenges right from the beginning. All the monks had come from the jungle of Thailand. You know, they all look like, you know, kind of tough and, you know, well, not the academic world that came from, you know. <laughs> they were all old hippies, you know, that had been on the road for years, you know. They ended up in Thailand and trying to look almost like those tough meditation masters, you know, like really, you know, <laughs> tough look, you know. And I like to smile and be charming, you know, and kind of enjoy life and, you know, have an easygoing time. So there I was, you know, um, walking in the dark at four o'clock in the morning to get up to my puja at five, was at the main community's place, going down at 10, 9.30, 10 o'clock, you know, 15 minutes walk down a very isolated country lane. In that small little cottage, which was very pretty, uh, but still uh, also needed a lot of work. And we spent five years there. I spent five years in that uh, environment. Um, after five years, uh, after four years, three or four years, our teacher decided that because those women that who were living there were very committed and truly interested in the monastic life and the training, he offered us an ordination, which is which is the one I have, which is a new ordination in Thailand. It does not exist. He asked the elders in Thailand to give you know, permission to establish a new ordination for women, which uh, gave them a training, which gave us a training over a period of years. This training was kind of uh, got established uh, very close to the bhikkhuni training of the ancient order of uh, monastic uh, order of women in the time of the Buddha. So thanks to Ajahn Suchito, who was, quote-unquote, our mother superior for five, for five, six years, and uh, to my teacher, we got uh, uh, eventually a, a very good uh, training, which uh, helped us to train as alms mendicant women, which was completely a new thing in, in the West, in the East also. There are very few uh, nuns ordained and living the life of an alms mendicant, which means not really um, holding money, having control over money. And this is a life I've led now for over 20 years. And so we've had a lot of interesting time. You know, the, 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 the house itself was an external challenge. You know, people thought we were Hare Krishna. Uh, we were, you know, all sorts of, it was, a, we were part of the stockbroker belt of London, which was this very beautiful area. Uh, and just happened to, we just happened to be there. 
because originally the monks, uh, the Ajahn Sumedho and the, the trust, the English Sangha Trust, was looking towards wells where the land is very cheap. But somehow this house came up, the forest was given, and there we ended up in a stockbroker belt, one of the richest parts of England. So you can imagine what that did to the environment there, you know, all this kind of... A lot of aristocratic people around, a lot of upper-class people around. And I remember Ajahn Shah spent a few, a little bit of time there before he went back to Thailand when he first got established. And they had a meeting in the village hall. So they could meet the people the, the, living in the, in the uh, environment uh, closely and explain to uh, them, to the local, local people, what they were up to. And it was wonderful because uh, one of the, uh, the the president of the trust had a very good friend who worked for the BBC. And there was a video that was made very early on, right to almost as soon as he arrived, there was a video made called The Buddha Comes to Sussex, which you can see uh, from Abhayagiri. You can see, you can, you can get this video if you want to. And in this video, you see the whole scene in the village hall where you have a whole kind of range of people from the farmers to the aristocratic, the, the, the royals, to the upper class, the upper middle class, and so on. You know, a whole range of people. And you have one person that somebody at some point who said, well, if you guys can get a free meal once a day, well, good luck for you kind of thing. <laughs> Other people were, you know, expressing all sorts of doubts and anxiety and, you know, and... But English people are generally very polite, very courteous, and also friendly. So very, they're very respectful of, of human people, you know. So they're very polite and respectful. So that, that helps. So I can't go into a lot of details because time is running. But we eventually, Chittas was established and became is now almost part of the establishment of, of Sussex, you know. People come to, Anybody is, is, goes to Chittas and it's like really the very respected monastery and for by anyone around the area. In fact, down the bottom of our field, we have somebody called Sarah Miles, probably one of you, some of you may know her. She was a very famous, she's still a very famous actress. She was, I think, uh, Brian, Ryan's daughter or something. Yes. So she lives just down the road, just just down the field. She's our neighbors, you know, and she's uh, very um, happy to live there, you know, very good friend of our community. And so over the years, our nuns' community grew, and by four years later, we are eight nuns, and um, Achen Semedo was looking for a larger place, so there will be, uh, to accommodate a larger community of nuns and also lay people, there was an extreme interest in this, the, our community, and by then it was beginning to be a little bit known. There's been a number of articles in, in new, fairly known newspaper and so on. And uh, in fact, two weeks after we ordained, I don't know if anybody, any one of you knows England, but there's a magazine called Women's Own, which is like a real sort of, um, I don't know, I can't really explain. It's sort of, it's very ordinary magazine, really kind of, you would never imagine a journalist coming to interview Buddhist nuns, you know. But we got, uh, two weeks after we ordained, we got a journalist from Women's Own, very well-known magazine in England. But kind of you'll find it more in the kitchen table of a kind of working-class family, you know, not particularly educated or anything like that. But there we are. We were interviewed and got an article in there. 
Uh, and so eventually, uh, you know, uh, Amarawati was um, established uh, in 1984. So we start in 79, Chitta, 1984, after a year after I had been ordained as a 10 precepts nun. And uh, we, um, we went to Amarawati, the nuns went to Amarawati on foot. We decided that we wanted to follow the tradition of moving from one monastery to another on foot, following the ancient tradition of the Buddhist monks and nuns of the Buddhist time. So we spent three weeks walking from Chetas to Amarawati on foot uh, with our rucksack, and people came to offer the meal during the day from all over the place. It was quite magic. Uh, we managed to have a few adventures. Uh, we got arrested three times in one day. <laughs> at some point. Accused of arson. <laughs> held back at the police station for three hours. Questioned. On the way, we were on our way to stay with a man called John Coleman, who is... Uh, an American, a well-known meditation teacher, an ex-CIA. So you could see how <laughs> we could have been in trouble. But um, we finally, uh, just in the kind of gentleman fashion of England customs, the policeman finally drove us right back to where they had picked up us, picked us up. And and then the next day we ended up um, in a monastery where. They took us uh, for young monks. <laughs> and when they realized we were nuns, not so young, <laughs> they, they were completely shocked and wondered what they should do with us. Eventually, the old abbot, abbot long bearded abbot, long, long sort of, you know, typical old wise man look, the old wise man look, uh, uh, invited us to stay in a place called the Monk's Garden in their huge uh, uh, park they had, which was so beautiful. It was actually, they lived in the house which had been the palace of Russian princes. See what monastery are like in England. <laughs> <laughs> and so we spent the night there. In the, in this, in the, we find that le- later when we met a Christian nun who lived near Marawati, that she knew very well this place. They had had conferences and so on, and she was absolutely amazed that nuns had stayed there because none of the Christian nuns ever stayed there. It was just a mistake, but we made history. (laughs) (laughs) So eventually we arrived at Chittast, and it was also interesting at the time. I mean, it's a pretty kind of gruesome story, but at the time, there was a person in England called a fox who was terrorizing the population. He was raping and doing all sorts of, inflicting the most horrendous treatment to people of a sexual nature. And uh, before we left, I still remember on the national newspaper, there was a, a, a phot- photograph of women with a gun saying the women of St. Of, of Margaret's are waiting for the, for the fox. And those women, uh, St. Margaret's Lane, was exactly what Amarawati was. Just a little, a little <laughs> footnote. <laughs> so that was interesting. Achen Sumido told us he was very anxious all the way, all through our pilgrimage. Of course, we carried Buddha relics and so on, and 
It was quite a beautiful time. It was in July, in beautiful weather. And eventually we arrived at Amarawati, which was, you know, by the time we left Chitter, Chitter's was the most beautiful house, uh, an old Victorian house, and which had been renovated by the community. Our cottage also had been renovated. Everything looked beautiful, and there we had to go. So talking about letting go, not attaching. You know, we worked really hard for it. We made it beautiful, and now we were invited to move on. And Ashton Sumido said, oh, isn't it nice? We're moving to the next place, and there's no work to do. So we all kind of, ah, Then we arrived there, and within within a few weeks, we find that there were 600 windows that needed repair. So... There we were for the next three years working on repairing windows. And we were very thorough because we had lots of time where we could do it very well. So I I learned all about repairing old windows from scratch. You know, where you you scrape the paint, you uh, fill up the holes, you uh, put the the primer, and then you put the second one coat, and then second coat, and all sanding for hours and all that. You know, three years of that almost daily. Beside being the guest nun, the senior nun, and all that, you know. Still, since the Chito, our mother superior, used to be kind of looked almost proud when people were looking for the senior nun, and I would arrive with this kind of, you know, with this kind of clothes covered in paint and dirt and with a paintbrush on one side, and he would say, this is our senior nun, you know. He looked almost kind of, see, she's, <laughs> she's somebody, you know. <laughs> And so we arrived at Chittas, Chis, uh, Amaravati. Amaravati was an old school, an old boarding school for children who had learning difficulties. So uh, we thought that was an appropriate place for us, too. <laughs> <laughs> Being so thick-headed, you know, as we discovered in the practice, how stubborn we can be hanging on to our ignorance, you know. And uh, we... Um, we arrived at Amaravati, and Amaravati, as I said, needed a lot of work. Beside the fact that uh, it, it used to be a school, and so because it was part of a state school, it could spend as much money as it wanted on the heating system, which was absolutely uh, amazing. Very, 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 um, you know, very expensive heating um, bills. Uh, with the system they had, so what well, we could not afford it, and we decided not to use this central heating and for two years, and to just use you know the heater we had. We had a, a, a wood stove in a nun's area with a French wood stove we would call the baby monster, because he used to eat up logs about that long that thick, and about ten of them in there, and of course all the nuns had to kind of log it in, you know. We broke our back. I mean, most of us kind of got ruined our back through that. We had to get up at three o'clock in the morning to get, a, you know, a whiff of heat at four o'clock, you know, four thirty. And it happened that those two, nine eighty-four and eighty-five, were the coldest winters of the century in England. So the monks still speaks about finding ice on their glass of water that they put on the side of their bed the night before, and we did too. 12 degrees, which is about maybe 40 degrees, 40 degrees, 45 degrees, was the highest temperature I got in my room at the time. You know, And that was only a few hours a day. <laughs> the rest of the time in the wintertime, it was more like 30 degrees, 32 degrees, you know. 
So, uh, you know, this is what we, 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 we went through, you know. And so people say, oh, you must have such a nice life, you know, just, <laughs> just, just, just not having to pay the bill, not having to do any work, not having to do what a wonderful thing. I love to be a nun too, you know. And I love to be a monk, you know, it would be so nice, just such a simple life, you know. <laughs> you know. And so we continued and eventually we finished the windows after three years and, you know, and, uh, and then we, you know, and then we, and then the community's life. I mean, this is not to mention the dynamic of a community living with 30, 40 people. They all get on your nerve at some point, 10 times a day. They step on your feet at the wrong time. They say the wrong word at the wrong time. They say the right word at the wrong time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they say the wrong word at the right time. You know, it's just kind of irritating kind of um, interaction. And so, <laughs> and so this is the life of monastics, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, our mother superior had never been a mother superior before. In fact, he'd been a, a hippie for many years and uh, traveled the world and uh, played guitars and uh, was very bright mind and intelligent and a bent, a strong bent on asceticism. He loved wiping the snow off the toilet bowl. <laughs> All the ice, you know. And we, we, we ended up with Ajahn Sachito, who is probably one of the toughest monks I've ever met. You know, very tough, very ascetic by nature. And there he had, got in charge, he was in charge of 12 women. Strong, <laughs> independent, powerful. And, uh, you know, um, so he, we had a very interesting training with him. Eventually, we, we won't go into the details. It's probably better left unsaid. <laughs> but we recognize that after a number of years, we, the result was quite interesting, you know, because he certainly softened, became a lot more gentle, and he helped us to be absolutely, you know, very, um, have, you know, to really live by very high standard. Very high standard, and he was not. A, um, he is known for having been chosen because he was the only monk who could withstand the nun's tears. <laughs> so whenever we cried, he would just sit there completely un. And we recognize later on that I think he was just, just going through terror. <laughs> because he didn't have any clue what to do with the women crying. <laughs> and when he had 12 of them doing that at one time or another, <laughs> then he had a very quick learning into handling women. <laughs> a crash course, you know. And so eventually you realize that a woman crying wasn't a problem. <laughs> and when he got um, educated enough in handling women's uh, monastics and not minding us crying, then it was, uh, you know, very much easier. In fact, monks have to cry also many times, you know, in their life to um, go through the training. 
you know, Ajahn Chah said, unless you can try, you cry three times in your training, you haven't even started. You haven't really done what it takes to train. You have to come to that point of utter, that point of utter despair, you know, when you really are completely pushed against the wall and you don't know where to go anymore, to realize some deeper aspect of the training, you know. Because the training itself is really letting go of the ego. And the ego is, um, is very frightened. It's a very frightened um, conglomerate. It's a congl- conglomeration of fears and a, a lot of unskillful desires, you know, and fears particularly. So um, you have to go through fear, you know, in the, in the training. You have to go through uh, feeling dejected, rejected, abandoned, hated, unloved, alone, uh, lonely, uh, despairing, all the worst thing that we dread to experience, you know, the worst mental states, those who, who, who would do anything to run away from, you explained that in monastic life in a very intensive way. And of course, because we do this training voluntarily, with, uh, you know, because we're all there by choice, then the commitment is strong enough to pull you through those moments, you know, when you can actually go through. Um, there is time, you know, where you, you spend, people in the early years uh, said to Achen Semedo, you know, this will never work in the West. You need a pair of jeans and you need money here. Never work by devoted Buddhists, you know, not any old body, by people who have actually been practicing, at least more in the kind of what we call, we call in England the armchairs Buddhist, which means they used to read a lot, but not really practice much. And so uh, Achen Sumedhu said, well, maybe so, but why don't we try, give it a try, and see what happens. And Achen Sumedhu had said to had asked Ajahn, when Ajahn Shah, uh, you know, said to Ajahn Sumedho, after he uh, inquired to, with Ajahn Shah, you know, how could he live in the West as an arms mendicant, you know, when nobody is Buddhist there, nobody knows what to do with a Buddhist monk. You know, in Thailand, when they see a Buddhist monk, their eyes lit up, they go in Anjali, they have complete confidence in the person they see, and they want to give everything, especially if he's a good monk. They will just give anything. People give BMW in Thailand, you know, just after listening to a talk of a teacher who maybe gave a talk that inspired them. Some people will come and say, I want to give you a BMW for the monastery. I'm so inspired by what you said. That's the kind of faith that the Thai people have, you know. Just quite amazing. And they're not that rich, you know. BMW means a lot for them, you know. People have given a Mercedes, brand new Mercedes, to Wat Nombapong, to Ajahn Shah's monastery, to a monk who couldn't care less about Mercedes, <laughs> who is probably the most humble monk you ever met, who just couldn't care less about material position, possessions, and there he is, he's got a Mercedes on the, in the monastery, and he's got a driver too, who's driving him around, you know. <laughs> So you get that kind of thing. You know, people will give you saints. You know, people build houses in Bangkok just for the monks to have a place to live, you know. 
And the servant will just go and offer food whenever they come, you know. Just that kind of incredible uh, surge of love and, and faith and, and interest, you know, in, in monastic uh, and, and monks. And sometimes nuns, you know, nuns have got another, you know, it's another situation. I'll talk to you about this next year <laughs> I mean, if I come back, you know. But I spent actually two years and two and a half years in Thailand, and I was basically, I could say I had the red carpet wherever I went. I was incredibly well supported. I was, I had a lot of respect from people generally. And I was, I lived at, truly as an arms mendicant in the forest. You know, I went on Pindapat. Um, first year I was there, I could go Pindapat every day with my little arms bowl alone in the countryside. My teacher gave me a little route I could go to. He talked to his disciples and I had a few houses. I'd go arms around and come back to the monastery. You know? So that was a very special time because not many nuns uh, would go on Pindapat, even though that's more and more the case now in, in, in Thailand. You know, the nuns are much more empowered these days because a number of very educated women are turning to be, become nuns and starting their own nunnery, their own Dhamma center, and so on, you know. I went in Pindapat in Bangkok. I went in the slums of Bangkok. I actually received alms food from slum people. You know, really slum. You know, with a nun who's a good friend and who has a Dhamma center. She's been in the Bay Area not that long ago. Last year, she's called Mechi Sansani. Some of you, she went to Spirit Rock. She's a very, very famous nun in Thailand now. And together with a few nuns, we, were, we went Pindapat every day for quite a long time when I was there. You know. So um, just to come back to England now, because if I start on Thailand, I could be here all night. I love Thailand. So um, you know, my teacher said, well, let's see what happens. You know? And little by little, we were two hours away from London. You know? It wasn't obvious that we would get food every day, was it? With no people with no money, and in 24 years of my life as a nun, we've never had a day without a meal and a very good meal, usually, very well provided. All our requisites, you know. We did a lot of work at the beginning, huge amount of work. In fact, for at least 12, 13 years, eventually there was enough fund to. Um, to um, have contractors coming to do some work, you know. But the monks and the lay community, for example, re-roofed the whole of the uh, Chitta's house, which is a huge surface. You know, they spent three months re-roofing the place. We, um, you know, we, we, we did all the work for many, many years. I was an expert as at, we, all the nuns, many nuns were expert at um, you know, you know when you put plaster balls and you seal them together like that, and you you kind of, I was expert at that. <laughs> you know, for somebody who never did anything handy and practical most of my life, I thought that was an achievement. Really, I, I, I was able to paint happily. You know, I was able to um, sand all sorts of things. To, um, you know, to to I did even steps. I, I, I ventured into carpentry, something I'd never done in my life before. I, I actually made little kind of steps in front of the house, where the guest house, the, the, the laywoman's guest house, which really enjoyed doing that. It took me weeks. 
of getting it wrong, but <laughs> and then right eventually, you know. But it's still standing, so it's obviously, you know, it's a number of years ago. <laughs> so, um, you know, our community since then has moved. You know, we've had we have four monasteries in England, one monastery in Switzerland, one in Italy, one at Abayagiri, Abayagiri in California. There's two, uh, one in New Zealand, one in uh, uh, Australia. And so it has spread over a period of time, over 24 years. And the community are very well established, whether it's in Switzerland, the most beautiful area in Switzerland, in Italy, about one hour north of Rome. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a flourishing Sangha. In fact, as, as a nuns community, we always have a waiting list for all the young women who want to come and ordain. They come and go. They may not necessarily stay. But many people want to try it out. It's such an unusual lifestyle. And it's a shame we're coming to the end of the time. Uh, you know, but what I, I wanted to say is that the training, and more and more as I look back after, 20, after a number of those, you know, several decades, when I look back at the training, what I'm amazed is that the, the, what the monastic training affords is something very, very special. Very little situation will give you a chance to really let go of the world in a very intentional way, in a very conscious way, you know, to really drop what I call the worldly concerns, praise and blame, love and hate, success and failure, fame and defame. You know, when you commit yourself to not following those forces, even though they still course through your mind daily, you know, in a sometimes very heavy way, you know, uh, you have a time to really understand yourself from a completely different angle. You know, you, you have a chance to go deep in yourself and to start finding a true refuge in something that is not dependent on the ego. And this is something unique and very um, rare. And you have to go through a dark night to get there. You don't get there so easily. The ego clings to itself endlessly. But if you have the practice a good teacher, a good community, you can go through the moment of despair, the moment of, uh, you know, of, of the, the worst difficult moment of the mind and come out of the other side free from a little bit more self-identity. So I leave you on this and hopefully you have a bit more understanding of what monastic life is about. There is a lot of joy also in this life. Of course, we would not be doing it otherwise. It's a joy of following the heart. The joy of, of uh, realizing the Dhamma and seeing for oneself from direct experience the result of practice in its deepest sense. That brings a huge amount of joy. Remember the joy, the pity in the, one of the seven factors of enlightenment? That joy is very is a, is a foundation of this life. You know. 
It's not particularly a feeling of elation and happiness. It's just a buoyancy of the heart that is joyful. So, maybe if those who want to leave at 9 o'clock, I hear, please go. And those who want to stay behind for a few more minutes and ask some questions, I'll be very happy to answer within my capacity. Do you want to be a nun? No, sorry. (laughs) 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 Joke. You are not mind reading, obviously, are you? Because <laughs> if you are mind reading, you will know that I have never stopped dancing. <laughs> See, I danced. I danced, making lots of flower arrangements. I never did flower arrangements in my life, but my reputation went all the way to Thailand. <coughs> believe it or not, I started doing flower arrangements at the monastery, and my goodness, who did they dance? You know. And I said to my teacher, you know, I don't think I've given up dancing. I mean, I still care. I'm still dancing. My flowers, you know, were kind of dancing all over the place, you know, arabesque and jumping and, you know. So, you know, the, the heart that made me a dancer is the same heart that made me a nun. Not different. Just the same. As crazy as <laughs> the one I had before. You have to be crazy to be a nun, really, a little bit. <laughs> you really, if you knew what you get yourself into, you'll never get in there. But you have to have that kind of something, you know. I think I was a bit, you know, uh, a bit eccentric, I think. Even though I look, I like to look very, um, you know, fitting in somehow, you know. But deep down, I think there was a part of me that was, did not mind the challenges that was, that were going to go, come along my way. So. I love Rumi, you know, so it's not so far away from our practice. Dealing with anger, dealing with that, that's a good question, yes. Well, this is why I say maybe I'd, I'd talk to you more about the external side of our life, but the practice, I'm talking to a group of people who are practicing the Dhamma, you know, so I assume they would know that when I talk about practice, they know that I'm practicing awareness, mindfulness, and uh, facing anger just with, uh, you know, acceptance, loving kindness, mindfulness, and learning to let it go. You know, from moment to moment. And now we have, we become more sophisticated now. We have non-violent communications uh, groups in our community. We have all sorts, I won't tell you what we have, all, we have all sorts of means to help us be, beside the traditional formal practice. Okay, because monks and nuns living together, it's not evident, is it, that it will work. 
we've had a few, you know, uh, I'm not even talking about sexual, you know, lust or anything like that. When Ajahn Sushito was asked, you know, we had a lot of fairly attractive women, you know, in our community, and somebody asked Ajahn Sushito, did you ever feel like, you know, any attraction to those nuns? And he said, I don't know if anyone of you knows him, he's a wonderful teacher, <laughs> he kind of put a, his face and we said, well, no, I think murder came more. <laughs> yes. Well, we, our year is like this. Our day, we have morning sitting, evening sitting, and once a week, we had an all-night sitting. Okay? And then our practice is really integrating mindfulness and everything we hear of the teaching in our everyday life. The sole purpose of monastic life is to develop the practice. Remember that. We're not there for anything else. There's no, nothing comes before that. And then few months of the year, we do a retreat. Like nowadays, every three months of the year, we do formal retreat. And then in the summertime, we have maybe two weeks to a month retreat again. You know. But, yes. Okay. Yes. For the community, yeah, our community is open. Uh, our monastic community has done. We, we're completely part of our uh, 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 community that surround the monastery, but also from whole of England. People come from all over England to stay with us. We have guest houses for male, for female. At Amaravati, we have a retreat center where we have maybe 20, many, many retreats many, many retreats, like maybe 10, 10-day retreats throughout the year, and lots of weekend retreats, two weeks retreats, and so on, taught by the senior monks and nuns of our community. We have held interface conference, interface retreats with other uh, monks and nuns of different tradition, Christian, uh, all traditions. And uh, we have now a program for our lay community, who spend many years wondering why they should not be as good as the monks and nuns, quote-unquote. Finally, wisdom dawned on them that they could actually be very good practitioners as lay people. And there is a program of Upasika, which all of our monasteries have now, which is specifically designed for the lay practice. And they come regularly to the monastery to reaffirm their precepts, to get some teaching. They have a study program and so on. And they have in England, they're much more together in, the, in terms of newsletter. They have Our newsletter is getting thinner and thinner because there's less people that can do it. The lay community has a wonderful newsletter now. You know. so, it's, so it has broadened. The network has kind of really widened enormously. Yes? It's 20 minutes north of Ukiah. You know Willets? Have you heard of Willets? It's about 20 minutes from Willets, south of Willets. How about the one in Italy? In England? Italy. Oh, in Italy. It's one hour north of Rome. 
in, um, you have to look, we have website of all our monasteries. If you go to a place called Forest Sangha on the web, you will find a lot of information about our communities. If you go to Amarawati, even Abayagiri has a website. Amarawati has a website. Most of them have a website. And there's lots of information there you can have. People come from all over the world during our winter retreat, three months winter retreat, all over the world to support the monastic community for three months. They run the monastery for three months. But at Amarawati, for example, because there, there, there is a group of 15 people, they also do a great amount of our retreat with us. So they hear the teaching, they sit a lot during the day, and they also run the monastery. And this is what happened at Abayagiri every year. A group of four people, or five people this year, spend the whole three months with the community, and they just love it because they do so much of the retreat with the community and hear the teaching. You know, they can hear the whole teaching. In fact, sometimes the teaching is such, it's put at the time when they can actually come and do and, and hear it. So it's quite an interesting time for you to come to the monastery or to really learn about this life as a layperson. Any more questions before we go? Okay, yes, one more. Yeah, um, do you find a need for RC and other practitioners of uh, the monastic order um, practicing Qigong or yoga? Or oh, yes. We practice Qigong, yoga, wuchi. Have you ever done wuchi? No. We have. Well, it's up to the individual. You know, we, we now we've had people coming to teach us, for example, wuchi, tai chi. We've had people doing, you know, all sorts of different exercises. My, my teacher, Chen Sumit, has practiced tai, uh, yoga for 20 years, you know. Um, yes, we have had weightlifting classes, you know, with a trainer who lived at the monastery and was training the monks, training the nuns. We had, you know, all sorts of things. People jogging. We're not supposed to jog in the in the light. <laughs> We're supposed to jog when people don't see us around too much. <laughs> but at Chittas, which is the most beautiful monastery with a forest of 140 acres of land there, a beautiful ancient forest of England, you know, with beautiful birch tree and oak trees. And and even it's, uh, uh, there's a kind of, a, it's a beauty spot on the maps. You know, it's very pretty. There's a lake, there's a little gingerbread cottage for the nuns, there's a, this beautiful Victorian house and the park all around, you know, it's a really gorgeous area. And so, um, you know, there you can jog through the forest in daylight <laughs> because it's a private land. And now in the forest is about 12 kutis, meditation huts, where most of the community lives now. In fact, the, the house is almost empty. <laughs> Everybody has gone to the forest and the guests stay in the house. It's a very beautiful area. Okay. Thank you.